computers online. Archiving 44K. doesn't want you to hear. Now here is your host, Leno Sanic. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Leno Sanic. We're speaking to author, producer, director, the whole package, Jim Eugenio. <laughs> okay. Good evening, Len. How are you doing? All right. Well, I heard you got to wait some nice weather out of Vancouver. Yeah, I was in Hawaii. I had an invitation to go spend some time with John Armstrong. He said, you know, I already pre-recorded something for him. It's not quite not quite 60 reasons for 60 years, which I have been mulling about on the 60th coming up. But um, mm-hmm. he had something that was approximately, you know, four hours in length. I pre-recorded some stuff with him on the telephone. He said, look, just come on out here. You, I got to talk to you and we'll do it on a, on a better microphone than the telephone or whatever and uh we'll just uh i spent time it's amazing it's amazing the stuff you know like i say he's the one person and this happens a lot in the jfk research community you don't agree with everything about everybody but those mm-hmm. who get by it you go i mean if you're listening to this show you, you agree with 80 percent i know some people write in the oh i don't you know jim garrison this or or david mm-hmm. lifting that or so you know or mark lane even you know so nobody's perfect but it was so evident to me that many times when I was talking to him, he said, listen, if I'm wrong or I'm in error, just show me where I'm wrong. But here's what I found. And he starts pulling out documents and, and details and, and, and he goes, he's really one of the people that uh, have gone to the records and the archives and that and, and you know, traveled around the world to it. I, th- I think he may have told you this too, but he had quite a big dining room table in, or in, a, in a room. And when yes. he first got into it, he just started spreading out all the documents on this big table. That's that's when he had his 10,000-square-foot house in Tulsa. Okay. Oh, okay. Right. All right. He had a 10,000-square-foot house, and he had a huge dining room. And he set up a series of tables. Okay. And then he started laying out all the Oswald documents. Okay. And that's when he began to think something was really wrong with this chronology. Yeah. Yeah. And and the good thing is that when he proves that he said somebody's here in a white shirt, somebody's there in a brown shirt, and and just we'll leave it at that for now. But, you know, if you want to say, look, it it, it appears that that it was an imposter. There was somebody using Oswald's name or there was like one of the quotes was, if that wasn't Oswald, it was his twin. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Anyway, I I just spent. That uh, was Silviodio. Yeah, right. I just yeah. uh, spent hours. Okay, so uh, so you were on the Big Island, right? No, he came to where I w- I went to Oahu. I went oh, to Oh, he came to Honolulu. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he must have really been interested then. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, over the years, I've done good work with them, and as you know, sometimes you get people who have their own agenda, and they'll interview you, and then you, and then they'll they'll try to twist it, or they'll change something on you, and I see that there's some reports this week again in, in lieu ahead of the 60th anniversary that they're trying to pick apart things with Oliver Stone. And mm-hmm. I mean, my God, Jim Garrison, you sift through like what the last week I had Paul on. Right. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, just the things that he found out. So if one or two of these things find are in error, it's the same thing with John Armstrong. If, you know, maybe there, there isn't, a Harvey and a Lee and you know but if you get by that and you say well there's there's two people 
there's, there's, you know, mm. something's going on, and then you have to get through that, right? Um, anyway, yeah, he's already always been good with me and fair, and so when I said I'd, I'd come out there, but I wasn't going to, um, I was going to stay in Oahu and make a bit of a holiday of it as well, right? So, um, mm. yeah, he came, yeah, he came there. Now, it wasn't too far from So, him. you, you, so you, so he came into Honolulu. Yeah. Okay, so where, what hotel were you at? <coughs> we stayed at two. Um, one called the Outrigger. I stayed there for one week, um, and also then I stayed at one called the the Bamboo. Um, oh, did you go with your wife, or did you go? By yeah, the... no, no, it was my wife. Oh, oh, okay. okay. And for the first couple of days, um, we saw a few other people there as well. So, mm-hmm. but I went to the Queen Capulani and hung around there, and that that was uh, where I had met Mark Devalk and uh, Wes Swearingen and a few other people years ago. When mm-hmm. I was uh, going to put on something, you know, and every now and then I think about that, you know, like, geez, it's just su- such a far place, though. You know, like, I will travel mm-hmm. to Pittsburgh, right? You know, or I, I travel to L.A. Well, well, you know? well, Wecht is going to have one on the 60th. Yeah. Yeah. So just make sure about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Now, I think we have to explain something, Len. Okay. I'm going to answer some letters tonight. But if you think I'm going back too far. It's not that I'm going back too far. I answered these already, but there was a technical problem with the taping. And this happened before Len went to Hawaii. Okay. Oh, yeah. Right. So so it's not like I'm very late on this. I never try and be too late. Okay. With these questions. But because of the technical problem we had, plus him going to Hawaii, that's why they might appear to be late tonight. Okay. But they really aren't. Before we get to the questions. Okay, right. good. Before the questions then. Yeah, let's take a look because I haven't been on in a long time. Okay, I haven't been on in a month. That uh, long? Yes. Wow. Yeah, you, you managed to have some great shows when you were in Hawaii. You should do that more often. Okay. Well, yeah, we got Rob. <laughs> well, no, I'll tell you what, Jim. Didn't you mention something about maybe going to Hawaii? Well, I didn't want to talk about that now because that's going to be a personal me and you and uh, and Patricia and yeah, yeah, wife. sure, sure. But who knows? Maybe we'll invite John Armstrong for it. Maybe. Well, we'll yeah, if he wants to come over, that's yeah, fine. yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. So it's been a while since I've been on, and there's been some. Oh my God! First of all, I reviewed Mark Shaw's latest book, Fighting for Justice. Whew. You know. I don't want to get it personal or anything, but if you're going to write a book, have something to say. This guy answers readers' questions to his blog in his book. For all that he that was new in this book, that he needed to write a book, he could have written, you know, like a 20-page uh, summary on his blog site. Now, I've, as everybody knows, he's gotten in the Marilyn Monroe case, and you know that that thing is like we're we're gonna I'm. I'm working on something really big on that, okay, as we'll see, and as have we seen with Don McGovern. That's nothing but quicksand. It's it's pointless, all right? I just hope Shaw doesn't get into the RFK case. Oh, my God. Now, the big thing I wrote while you were gone was about Seymour Hirsch. The title of it is Cy Hirsch Falls on His Face Again, Again, and Again. And I'm sure you've heard that he Hirsch has his big scoop, his Hirschian scoop on the Nord Stream explosion. Well, there are some people, including me, who have some doubts about his explanation. And so I went into some of the background about Cy Hirsch. See, this whole thing, which I'm sure you're aware of, Len, this whole Substack thing, you know what that is? Yeah, but for people who don't know, it's a... A site yeah. for writers. Writers open up their own sites, okay, and you pay a certain fee, okay? It might be eight bucks a month to access their site. The problem with this is, as I see it, is that you have to write a lot of content to keep people coming back, all right? And therefore, you end up writing a lot of drivel that's not footnoted, that's not referenced, So this is what Hirsch is doing. And he's trying, I believe, to redeem the beating he took on his god-awful book, The Dark Side of Camelot. That was published in 1997. 
I truly believe he's trying to get to a new generation of readers who weren't around back then. You know, after all that, that was like 27 years ago. All right. Uh, 26. All right. And, and I think he's trying to pass himself off again as a pseudo authority on John F. Kennedy and his assassination, which he isn't. He's absolutely terrible. Okay. And so I wrote this, this got a lot of attention, by the way. All right. And uh, I'm going to write a, a follow up to this because he, he kept on writing something else, which is another piece of drivel that he wrote. See, the difference between what I do and Substack is it takes me a while to write something because I take the time to footnote everything I write. I mean, for this guy, you know what I had to do for, to, for Hirsch? I had to go down to UCLA and find a certain archive that was very, very difficult to get. In fact, they didn't even have it at UCLA. They had to send away for it. It came in today, okay, and I have a week to go down and read the thing. And then I'm going to go ahead and write my comeback. To, I, I feel like sending him the parking structure fee and my gas fee, you know, for going down there. But see, that's the difference between me and a guy like him. And the other thing is, of course, is somebody like Hirsch, he relies on on person-to-person contacts, whether or not the person is reliable or not. As I wrote in this article, I demonstrated point by point how he fell for so much BS on the Kennedy case that it was embarrassing. I and and let me, let me make something clear about this to show just how bad he is. If you recall, and I'm sure you do, Lynn, when his book came out, ABC bought the rights to the book without any testing of the materials that were in it, sight unseen. There was supposed to be this so-called legal trust set up by a guy named Lex Cusack out of this law firm in New York. Hirsch, even though he got big money, and I mean big money for that book from his publisher, he did not forensically test the documents. So ABC forensically tested the documents. They turned out to be forgeries. And so ABC now had to do some CYA on their crack reporter that they had paid so much money for, okay, who ended up being dead, stinking, lousy, wrong, all right? And so Peter Jennings was the host of that show. Little did he know that there was another foul pal that Hirsch had made, and I described this in my article, all right? Except this was a twofer. There were two people who ended up lying, okay, on that show, all right? And ABC would not admit it. It was the ARB that later certified that this was more Hirschian BS, okay? All right? This is what I, and, and Peter Jennings took this personally. There's no doubt he took it personally, all right? And I can prove that, and, I, and I'll talk about that in the second part of this article, all right? He took it so personally that this was the genesis of the 2003 program, all right, Beyond Conspiracy. And so this is what Seymour Hirsch gave us. He not only gave us his lousy book, this lousy special, but he then gave us his piece of crap, Peter Jennings uh, documentary, which hired a guy who worked for Hirsch, Gus Russo, as the lead researcher, okay? And then he brought in Dale Myers, all right, we, you know, we, with the single bullet fact B BS, okay? So th this is all in the first part of the, most of this is in the first part of the article. There's going to be a second part also to show even further, uh, you know, why this guy can't be trusted. All right, there's an article about the Walker shooting by Scott Reed. Did you have him on before? I think you did, didn't you? I'm not sure, to tell you the truth. Uh, I think you did. On the Walker shooting? No, no, no. Oh, it was, oh. 
it was on that the the uh, God, what that what's that guy's name the 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 key the the incident. Okay, you had him on. He lives in England, so. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I'll, I'll look through the archives and right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then why you should have him on about his Walker thing? Okay. Okay. And then I wrote a recent article about what I believe to be the what's coming for the 60th anniversary. There is this, you know, Barbara, our big fan, she alerted me to this article, all right, that was in this online magazine. And now listen, Len, Oliver Stone's film came out in 2021, and it was sold on Sky in England. That's where this magazine comes from, from the United Kingdom. This guy chose to write an article about the film last month. So I I saw this and I go, this is like really weird. Why are you waiting almost two years to write a review of Oliver Stone's film, JFK Revisited? And I came to the conclusion that this is the first Stone's throw on the 60th. I believe this is the first pre- preemptive strike on the 60th. What's so weird about this, and I mean really weird, is that he uses Tim Weiner as his main source to criticize Stone's film. Let me repeat that. He uses Tim Weiner, you know, from the Rolling Stone, used to be the New York Times. And me and Oliver already replied to that when it came out, all right, which is about two years ago. And he even says, his name is Aaron Starkey. He even says that there's some problems with Wiener's essay. Well, there's more than a few problems. The fact is it's complete BS, all right? What what Wiener did was he tried to say, as many others have done, and this goes back to Matrokin Archive and CBS and Max Holland, that somehow the CIA being in and encouraging the secret army organization in France to assassinate the Gaulle, that that was somehow a KGB disinformation story. Oh my God. If you read the book, JFK Revisited, okay, you will see in two places where I sourced those stories. They were not in any way from papers connected to the KGB. And in fact, one source was the New York Times, who Tim Weiner used to work for, all right? Uh, Another place was David Talbot's book, The Devil's Chessboard. There was also a London newspaper involved and two uh, French newspapers, including Le Monde, all right? We had, I think, in total about six sources Okay, for that, for that, you know, it's just not very hard to find. It was even in Andrew Tully's book, Inside CIA, and he's a pro-CIA guy. All right, he even admitted it. So that was just garbage, you know. And then the other thing is, of course, that somehow Jim Garrison indicted Clay Shaw because of the influence of the Italian leftist newspaper in Italy. Now, this is... Again, this is nothing but rubbish, all right? How did Garrison get on to Clay Shaw? By investigating Oswald's ties in New Orleans in the summer of 1963. This began in October and November of 1966. And interviewing people and, you know, tracing down leads, Garrison got on to David Ferry, all right, which was not very difficult to do, all right? And so what happened then is that he then, Ferry, of course, was close friends with Clay Shaw, and that is how he got on to Shaw, all right? It was through, um, you know, things like the DRE and 544 Camp Street. And so that's how he got on to Clay Shaw. And Clay Shaw was called in for questioning about the third week of December 
1963. He was indicted on March the 3rd. So between December and March, Garrison was doing, and his staff, an all-out investigation of Sean Ferry. Okay? Ferry died under very weird circumstances, and Garrison ended up indicting Shaw before the newspaper article broke in that Italian newspaper. So how on earth can one influence the other? I just don't know. You know, this is just complete rubbish. All right. It would never stand up under any kind of editorial scrutiny. But there's no fact checking on these online magazines. All right. And so they just don't care. The, the, The thing is, you know, it's like Substack, you know. And so this is what happens. Stuff like this gets circulated. All right. Now, what is another thing that's really offensive about this is the, the guy tries to say that Shaw was not a CIA operative. Oh, my God. All you had to do was watch the film. We put two documents on the screen which proved it was declassified by the CIA that proved we could have done even more. All right. But they proved that number one, Shaw had a covert security clearance. It also proved number two, that Shaw was a highly valued contract agent for a number of years to the CIA. All right. So I don't know. And we could have put on the document from the ARB, Miguel Gillespie, who was the uh, specialist on CIA documents, you know, he wrote a memo saying that Shaw's 201 file had been tampered so much with that it was pretty much destroyed. Okay, that's how much the CIA was covering up for their association with Shaw. All right. So anyway, this is the kind of thing I believe is the first stone for the upcoming 60th anniversary, which is probably going to be another battle royal. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll see. Okay, so that's what's new at Kennedy's and King. And like I said, I'll now get to these letters that should have been got to previously. All right, Steve Kapesky. Did anyone in the right-wing Dallas milieu have Oswald listed as a communist? I don't think so. Also, I've been a socialist my entire life, and listening to Oswald in that interview he did shortly before the assassination, I got to say he didn't sound or talk like a communist. I don't get a sincere vibe from him that he actually was a communist or a Marxist. The interviews he did in New Orleans with the media that survive. Garrison wrote a memo about those, okay, saying how, words of the effect, how could anybody believe this guy was a communist? All right, the way he stands ramrod straight, okay, the way he messes up some of his words, okay, it's obvious that he's memorized the script, all right, and he's reciting that script. All right. Obviously, there was a lot of background to all this, but I wondered if anyone in right wing Dallas had their sights set on Oswald in this context. I I don't think so. I don't I don't think so. There's a story going out now about Walker. OK, but this guy did not come. He didn't tell the story till 50 years later. OK, so I, I, I have a very serious problem with that. I don't think anybody in Dallas really did have their sights set on Oswald at at this time. All right. Okay. Uh, Rich Searing. Thank you for responses to my previous questions. I admire your work and really respect your opinions on the JFK assassination. I have some more questions I would like if you could answer for me. Have you seen the documentary, Everything is a Rich Man's Trick? It can be found on YouTube and is roughly three hours long and done by Francis Conley. I did watch parts of this. 
And I think it's a pretty wild presentation. Okay, it's a combination of this kind of right-wing, left-wing stuff that is really makes for a bad mixture. He covers pre-World War II through 9-11, but there are some interesting theories there on the JFK case. I just wondered your opinions. I couldn't watch the whole thing, to be perfectly honest. In the podcast where you answered my last batch of questions, you addressed my question on the Zapruder film, where I was wondering why I couldn't see the back of JFK's head blasted out as described by Parkland workers and other witnesses. I heard you claim there is a frame that shows the wound. I've gone through every frame and still can't find it. Grodin showed a frame where you could actually see it at a, it's either in his book or he showed it at a conference. Doug Horn in his six hour presentation, Altered History, claims the film was altered to hide this wound and it clearly shows the headshot being toward the top and the right side. Horn believes the back of the head was blacked out to hide the exit wound and that frames were removed that would have shown the back and to the left debris that hit the motorcycle riders and others. This is, that's on David Mantic's new book. He and Sidney Wilkinson saw third generation transparencies, which seemed to go ahead and depict that, okay? That there was a blacked out part of the head that had straight edges. It was it probably wasn't any kind of shadow or silhouette. All right. But they have not been in my review of his book, like I said, they've not been able to find uh, the first generation ones. Horn believes the back of the head was blacked out and that frames were removed that would have shown the back that hit the motorcycle riders and others. I saw another website that claims the blackening on the back of the head is possibly a natural shadow, and their conclusion was that the film may have been tampered with, but the black area is possible just a natural shadow. Either way, if the film has not been altered, I still can't find the frame showing the massive wound in the back of the head. Like I said, Grodin found one. Okay, if the film hasn't been altered, then the only conclusion I can come to is that all the witnesses at Dealey and Parkland were mistaken about the head wound in the back and the autopsy evidence would be accurate. I find this hard to believe. In short, if you don't believe the film was altered, how do you explain this discrepancy? Well, I think I just tried to answer it. Okay. Um, there, Groden did show, I don't know where he got it, but he has the best version of the Z film. Okay. And he did show that. Right. But also to add to that, you can see, um, with, um, what's their name? Sydney. Um, they, they have a frame yeah. which they blew up and it looks like it does look like it's colored in. Yes. So, so either there somebody has got a first generation. And I think that uh, if I read an article that they were writing, Wilkinson, right? They said that after they are dealing with Gary Mack and they got this version, they went back to get slides of the 6K scans and, and they were gone. They were back to like uh, right. eight millimeter crap. So somebody's playing games. Right. All right. Doug Horn also in his presentation talks about the shell game of the body's arrival at Bethesda that was accomplished with a decoy ambulance and the switching of caskets at two different points based on Lifton's best evidence. I am still confused on the timeline of this and how it was pulled off. I do not agree with the Boyajian report, and you can see my disagreement in my review of Harrison Livingstone's book, Kaleidoscope. In section five of that review, I explain why I don't believe the, Boy the Boyajian report is a genuine certifiable document that we can rely on. So no, I don't agree with that. Well, he asked me to explain the timeline. I don't think there's a discrepancy in the timeline because I don't think that the, the body was there at 630. All right. 
there was a, there was another body coming in in a different casket. Thank you for your help and your great work. Also, congratulations on pronouncing my name correctly. You're welcome. All right, William Harrison. For many years, I've wondered why not a single author I've read, including all of your books, mentioned the failure of the President Johnson to set up the Warren Commission with experienced and competent homicide detectives to solve the assassination. If one really wanted to find out who is responsible for this crime, that was an obvious first step to doing so, rather than stacking the commission with politicians and a fired bureaucrat. Would you please comment on this? To my way of thinking, this was the first indication that Johnson wanted a cover-up. All right. If you recall, Johnson's, his idea wasn't the Warren Commission. He wanted to have a Texas-based investigation. And what he wanted to do is, because of course, and he was correct on this, because it, murder was a state crime, even the murder of a president at that time. And so he was talked out of this by people outside of the White House, by people like uh, Rostow, Eugene Rostow, and by, most of all, Joseph Alsop. They talked him out of doing that, and they're the ones that recommended the Warren Commission, a blue ribbon panel. Once that happened, once the investigation shifted to Washington and the Texas thing was gone, then almost by rote, it became an FBI inquiry. And that's what Johnson went around to having, you know, the, a federal investigation with the FBI as the main inquiring force. I think that was a terrible mistake. Okay. And that's why when the House Select Committee was organized, they insisted on having private investigators, not a federal investigation. It's been shown, and I've talked about this a lot, you know, the FBI's investigation was a joke, all right? And, and as Bill Turner once said, who used to be an FBI agent, the downfall of the FBI began with the Kennedy assassination, all right? Um, he once told me, and he was an FBI agent for 10 years, okay? He once told me that while the investigation was in process, he had some people inside the FBI who showed him some of the documents, all right? And he told me, Jim, you know, in any FBI investigation, there's three main steps, okay? You collect all the relevant leads, number two, you follow out those leads to their ultimate conclusion. Number three, you collect and collate the relevant information in the report that does not come to a conclusion. It's only descriptive. He told me once he looked at those reports, it was so obvious to him that step two had not been done that he immediately jumped to the conclusion that this had to be on the orders of Hoover and Tolson. Because on top of that, not only did they not do step two, but in spite of that, they came to a conclusion that Oswald did it, you know? And so that's what he said. He, he could tell that this was something, because FBI just, just didn't work like that, he said to me, you know? There had to be something from the top down. And so that's why it was a terrible mistake you know, to have the FBI as a main, now they didn't do the whole thing. They did about 80% of it. You know, the secret service and the CIA did the rest of it, you know, but you know, who's going to speak for them? I mean, they, they were just as bad, you know? All right. Ed Rivera. Thank you so much for your work. I was 12 when JFK was assassinated. After seeing the Zapruder film and photo evidence of Dealey Plaza, which I visited a few years after the event, it always seems remarkable seeing people filling the sidewalks on either side of the president's route. But around and across from the grassy knoll, there are very few people. In fact, we have come to know them individually. Was there any concerted effort 
to keep people from gathering near this scene. Uh, okay, yeah, this is a very interesting question. If you look in the week leading up to the visit, there's confusion as to the route that the parade was going to take. All right. And I believe, if I remember correctly, there was only one illustration that actually did place the actual route correctly in the paper. All right. Now, that is a very, very interesting point, to say the least. All right. And um, on top of that, you know, there's a lot of talk about the dog leg that the route took, the right on Houston, and the sharp left on Elm. And there was all kinds of excuses that this was somehow unavoidable. Well, the House Select Committee found out that it was not in any way unavoidable. They just went back to directories of the city streets back then, and they said, no, you didn't have to do this. There was an alternative route on Industrial Boulevard that could have got you to the trademark, thus avoiding the dog leg, okay? You know, so... This is why I believe that when you look at those pictures, the crowd thins out when it gets to the Dealey Plaza because of the conflicting uh, illustrations and descriptions of the motorcade route. All right. There's, and by the way, if you've ever been there, uh, most of you have, there was no excuse to take that route. It was just inexcusable. Okay, it broke every Secret Service violation in the book. All right, Keith Chester, March the 25th. I'm writing to express my admiration for your outstanding work with the JFK assassination. I have seen your your documentary and listening to the 50 plus hours of interviews you recorded with Dave Emery. Along with your books, you've provided an amazing body of work to be studied by newcomers to the subject and seasoned researchers alike. I have a question I'd appreciate you fielding should you find it worth your time to respond. I'm very much interested in Alan Dulles and his years with the OSS during World War II. During the course of your research via FOIA, have you accessed any records regarding this time frame about Dulles? If so, are these accessible? You know, I actually have not done that, you know, because I, I didn't write a book about Alan Dulles, all right? There are some biographies of Dulles that do talk about his OSS years, where he was stationed in Bern, Switzerland, okay? Uh, the one by Srodes, S-R-O-D-E-S, um, there's one, the one by Talbot, the devil's chessboard, and there's one other one, which I can't recall the name of right now, that you can get some pretty decent information on what Dulles was up to, uh, in Bern, Switzerland. That was his main station during World War II. So I would just recommend you to those. All right, Joseph Rowland, March the 26th. I'm a Kennedy assassination enthusiast. I'm 50-50 on the fence. And I have a question regarding Oswald's personality and character profile. Going through the Kennedy and King site, I found some very compelling info related to the big picture stuff. But to my knowledge, I haven't read any articles related to Oswald's character profile. And the articles that I found that do contain into an Oswald's personality profile with somewhat believable empirical evidence, it seems that Oswald was an egotistical, abusive man with great delusions of grandeur. Since I have so far not found a retort to this, 
on Kennedy's and King. I was wondering if you'd be willing to respond to these allegations. If you disagree, what evidence is there to the contrary that Oswald was not a disturbed individual? Or were these sources of info flawed to begin with? I recommended him to the article by Robert Charles Dunn on our site. Okay. It's called Was Oswald a Serial Wife Batterer? In which in a very tour de force performance by Robert, uh, he took apart all those accusations. All right and reduced them to what I consider to be more or less rubble, all right, by the white Russian community around Oswald. I always considered that white Russian community around Oswald to be sort of like the cloven of witches around Mia Farrow and Rosemary's Baby, you know. If you've ever seen that movie, you'll know what I mean. I also told this gentleman that in my book, Destiny Betrayed, the second edition, I wrote about 70 pages on a biography of Oswald, okay? And then I recommended the the three-part article on the Fair Play for Cuba Committee by Paul Blow to this gentleman, okay? And I told him, you know, my conclusion is that Oswald was not at all but the Warren Commission said he was, you know, and I believe that from a rather early age, okay, he was trying to get into intelligence work once he met David Ferry, you know, in the cap. And it sort of like became, I, I led three lives afterwards, okay? All right, Thomas Casca. Hello, Jim and Lynn, March 28th. I hope that I'm not being a nuisance with this issue of LHO speaking Spanish on the phone at the Beckley Rooming House. I've been thinking about Jim's speculation that perhaps Oswald was speaking Spanish to someone in the Alpha 66 anti-Castro group. Okay, I have a question. Assuming Oswald was speaking to an Alpha 66 member, Do you think it was most likely some part of the assassination conspiracy? Or do you think it was more likely completely unrelated? No, I don't think that he would talk about something like that at the Beckley rooming house. Okay. If it was unrelated, do you think LHO's contact with this group was kind of official espionage or some wacky action LHO engaged in on his own? All right. That's a very very difficult question. And I want to label what I'm going to say as speculation. All right. I don't really know, of course, but I would think that it would be some way that they were monitoring Oswald, not including him in any kind of assassination plan, but just monitoring Oswald at the time. Okay knowing where he was, what he was doing, et cetera, that kind of thing, you know, and Oswald was probably thinking the same thing. Okay. All right. Uh, And so it became kind of like a a game of liars poker. All right. That that's what I believe. Now, I personally believe that there were some Cubans involved in the actual hit squad, okay, that actually participated in the plot. And I've, I've written about this extensively, like Sergio Arcacha Smith and Bernardo de Torres, okay, I believe. And they probably, they, they very likely worked with the Alpha 66 cabal in Dallas at that time. So that's that's the best answer I can come up with. And of course, Sergio Arcacha Smith knew Oswald from New Orleans. So he could have tipped off these Alpha 66 guys about him. March the 29th, Marco Emacora. I hope you don't mind one more comment. I read your article from 2013. JFK's embrace a third world nationalism. 
Wow. I didn't know about some of these initiatives, like the offer to Portugal of 500 million to set their colonies free in Africa. Actually, it was more than that. Kennedy offered them something like 2 billion to set free Angola and Mozambique, as well as the initiatives around France, Iran, Egypt, etc. Very inspiring. And your conclusion at the end showing the overall pattern until the assassination and what came after. It made me think that the U.S. aided coup in Brazil in 1964 fit the pattern also. I found a good description of those latter events in a book called Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller, and Evangelism in the Way in the Age of Oil. That book was by Gerard Colby and Charlotte Dennett. They're still alive and living in Vermont. Uh, And by the way, I should recommend that's a very good book. A very good book. Okay. Remember, it's called I Will Be Done. It kind of, it'll remind you of the uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Yes. That's a very good, that's a very good parallel. Yes. Okay. We have one Adolf Burl from the Roosevelt administration working for Johnson, listening to shortwave broadcasts from Brazil as the U.S. government monitors coup events it is intimately involved in. So began 25 to 30 years of dictatorship in Brazil. Some of these events are described also in Schlesinger's book on Bobby Kennedy, especially JFK and RFK's attitudes towards the leftist tendencies overthrown in Brazil. I don't think they would have ordered what Johnson helped happen. Even though I consider myself with a radical left, uh, moderate tendency, my greater interest in the Kennedys, King, Malcolm X, and Roosevelt is one thing that rarely sees in these networks, except for Malcolm X. Thus, I have never come up with any description of Kennedy's anti-colonialist moves in the history of anti-colonial movements. Of course, I'm not a scholar in these areas, and I'm nowhere near the expertise of something of someone like you or any other typical professor or journalist. So maybe these references to Kennedy's in these areas are out there. But still, this void there concerning JFK seems pretty apparent to me at this time, except for the above book. Thanks again for that article, Marco. Well, you're welcome, Marco. I try and, you know, keep everybody up on these latest uh, scholarships in the field because the mainstream media is not going to tell you about it. All right, Joshua Wise. I just saw your later latest interview with Patrick. Uh, I can forget this guy's name. Do you know his name? His initials are PBD. Yeah, Patrick Bet David. Yeah, that's it. Patrick Bet David. That's it. Yeah. All right. Keep fighting for lost causes. Your work has inspired a whole new generation of historians to never stop searching for the truth and to tell history the way it happened. Your friend, Josh Wise. Okay. Well, you might want to take a look at the 27-part interview we just posted that Dave Emery did with me, John Newman, Paul Blow, Lisa Peace, Gary Aguilar, okay, and David Talbot. That's the longest interview, and he did it to salute Oliver Stone's film, JFK Revisited. Okay, so there's some more of it right there. Last one, April the 4th, and this is from our friend Barbara. This is a very interesting letter. Barbara usually does write interesting letters. I think she sent this to Larry Schnapp, and she also CC'd me. I was very disturbed by a segment of The Last Word, Larry O'Donnell's show last night. He's on MSNBC. The mention of the JFK assassination aftermath caught my attention. Is this worth a discussion on Black Op Radio? Well, you're going to get it, Barbara. Below, find the transcript I made of the segment. Okay, now this is from the transcript. You do not have to abide by the presumption of innocence for a second. The presumption of innocence is a principle that guides the procedures of our criminal courtroom in this country. And no one outside that courtroom is anyway bound by the presumption of innocence. Now, here comes the card sharp trick. On November 24th, 1963, now listen to this very closely. I'm going to say it again. On November 24th, 1963, 
two days after Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated President John F. Kennedy in Dallas. Did everybody catch that? He's assuming that Oswald shot Kennedy. The entire country watched on live television as Jack Ruby stepped forward in a Dallas police station and shot and murdered Oswald on live TV. Everyone in America saw that murder committed on live television. No one for a single second presumed Jack Ruby was innocent. Eventually, a jury was impaneled in Dallas who listened to Ruby's defense of being so carried away emotionally that he didn't know what he was doing. And by the way, that's wrong. That wasn't his defense. Melvin Belli tried for a uh, insanity defense that Ruby was a victim of psychomotor epilepsy. Okay. So no, that was, he's, he's wrong twice already. Okay. And of course they convicted him of murder. If those jurors actually reached a posture that allowed them to presume the innocence of Ruby, at least at the outset of the trial, then they did their duty. But it was only their duty to do. And no one else in America for a single second was ever asked to apply the presumption of innocence to the murderer who they saw commit murder on live TV. Now, here comes a tie in. So if you if you don't live in Manhattan, if you don't live in Fulton County, Georgia, and if you don't live in Washington, D.C., where criminal juries might be selected for trials involving Donald Trump, you get to presume whatever you want. With most highly publicized trials, I usually do not presume innocence and do not presume guilty because I know for certain that I do not know all the evidence. Based on my experience in courtrooms, the only way to know all the evidence is to hear every single word the jury hears in the trial, which no one outside the courtroom ever does. So we never know all that evidence. That's the way I recommend going into Trump's trials. You should consider beginning your attention to the Trump's criminal prosecutions with the humility that you don't know all the evidence. There could be evidence that works in Trump's favor, and none of us know about it yet. There would be evidence that works very strongly against Donald Trump. None of us know that yet. The presumption, but the presumption of Trump's innocence is a legal procedure framework that only applies in the courtroom and not in your living room. That's the end of the transcript. Barbara then says, has our country gone so far that the presumption of innocence is no longer valid? It's a pretty good question concerning what O'Donnell's saying. How does an individual get a fair trial if no effort is made to control pretrial publicity? Does the statement made by the late great Mark Lane no longer apply? In a debate held on December the 4th, 1964 at Beverly Hills High, Mark Lane debated three Warren Commission supporters. Below, see the quote that I still remember from hearing that debate on Leno Sanek's show provided by Ray Marcus. I take the position, Mr. Sullivan, it's a presumption which all of us over a period of years took an oath to uphold. A man is presumed to be innocent until such evidence has been amassed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he is guilty. Utilizing that yardstick, which some of the country has forgotten, but not all of it, fortunately. Utilizing that yardstick, I say the commission by amassing not 24 volumes of testimony, but 15 volumes of testimony, 11 volumes of exhibits for a total of 26 volumes, by amassing information has not presented sufficient evidence, which would prove that Oswald was in any way associated in the assassination of the president. That was really a great debate, Len. I'm so glad you played that, you know. I had many questions on the statements Mr. O'Donnell presented as fact. One, of course, that Oswald assassinated the president. Oswald was never tried. So in the eyes of the law, isn't Oswald presumed innocent? The entire country was watching the shooting in a Dallas police statement. No, that's not true, she says. Only persons watching TV at that time saw it. The tape showed Ruby shooting Oswald. It shows the back of a man lunging toward Oswald with a gun. I was instructed when serving on a jury, you are not to reach an opinion 
till hearing all the evidence, which Donald seems to negate. I thought the presumption of innocence would be given to every accused individual, whether you are a jury or not. I am not a Trump fan at all, but O'Donnell's presentation really troubled me. As far as I could find, O'Donnell has no law license or law practice. So what courtroom experience is he claiming? His father was an attorney, so is he trading on that? It seems to me O'Donnell is giving free reign to subject a person to McCarthy-like accusations. Is it me? Am I reading too much into this segment? Okay, you're not reading too much into this segment at all concerning Oswald. That's outrageous. For him to say that is just utterly despicable. Now, as far as Ruby, I think you know this, Lynn. Technically, when Ruby died, he was not guilty. And that's because Melvin Belli had a very good appeals lawyer on his staff. He was in the courtroom. I can't recall his name. It might have been Hundley. And Belli, at the opening of the trial, did everything he could to get a change of venue. Because he thoroughly understood that there was no way in God's green earth that Ruby was going to get a fair trial in Dallas. All right. And he put that on the record. You know, and as they say in court lingo, it's called you, you make the objection. The guy declines it. And then you say objection noted. Okay. And that goes into the record. And that was going to be the main basis for their appeal. And in fact, when the jury came in, Belli was trying to prepare Ruby and tell him, Jack, even if you're found guilty, we're going to win on appeal and you'll get a fair trial out of these confines. Now, let me say something. The question is not, did Ruby shoot Oswald? The question is, why did he do what he did? As Bobby Kennedy told me and Oliver, you know, he was always puzzled by that. You know, why did why did Ruby do that with all those cameras there, with all those witnesses there, with all those microphones there? You know, did he love our family? Did he love our family so much that he was willing to sacrifice his life? And then as later on, he learned that that wasn't the case at all. That Jack Ruby was really a kind of low-level mobster. And so the question then becomes... Who got the ruby to tell him what to do? Because as we, as I think most of us know, the FBI polygraph test that Ruby took was rigged. He actually flunked that test. And I've written about this in my books, okay, especially the one about JFK, the evidence today. So that's what the question becomes. I personally believe, and I've written about this a lot, there is no way that ruby came down the main street ramp. It just didn't happen. And I've written about this at length. That was a BS story that the Warren Commission tried to sell because they did not want to admit that Ruby had helped getting in that building that day, that there was a door left open in the back. Then that's the door Ruby came in. Oliver Stone put this in his, his 1991 film, by the way. And the House Select Committee agreed with that, that the likelihood is that Ruby did not come down the mainstream ramp. And if you can believe this, even, even Bert Griffin did not believe that that's what Ruby did. All right. Can you believe that? It's true. It's in Seth Cantor's book, his biography of Ruby. Bert Griffin got so mad at Patrick Dean that he essentially called him a liar because Dean was in charge of security that day. All right. And okay. explain who Bert Griffin is. Well, he was the Warren Commission lawyer that was in charge of the Ruby investigation. And so Griffin then wrote out a memo to Earl Warren, okay, saying words of the effect, I believe the witness is lying. I believe that there's a cover-up inside the Dallas Police Department about how Ruby got into the building that day. And I don't believe that they're going to tell us the truth on this. Well, when Henry Wade heard about this, uh, he just about hit the roof and he started threatening Earl Warren, okay, that he was going to make this public, et cetera. Okay, well, that was the end of that. But the fact that even Bert Griffin did not buy that excuse tells you something. So, yes, I believe if I had to speculate on this, 
and you have to because, as I said many times, there's never really been a real investigation of the Kennedy case. If I had to speculate on this, Ruby was the perfect guy for somebody like McQuilly to enlist because Ruby essentially said he idolized Lewis McQuilly. Lewis McQuilly was a gambler and a dealer in the mob hotels in Havana. Ruby actually went to visit him. And that's how Ruby probably got enlisted into this thing. And then he used his police contacts to find a way to get in to not going through the front gate because he knew that that would be monitored by the police. And it was. Officer Vaughn was monitoring it to make sure that only certain police and media people got in. Ruby was obviously not either one. And so I believe that Dean let him in the back door, okay? And he got in the back door. And then, as you can see in the film, there was only one live feed to Ruby killing Oswald. It was uh, by NBC, I believe. And Ray Marcus once wrote me a letter saying, Jim, which version of Ruby killing Oswald do you have? I said, Ray, what are you talking about? I called him up and I said, Ray, what are you talking about? Which version of Ruby killing Oswald do I have? And he said, do you have the one with no horns? Do you have the one with one horn? Or do you have the one with two horns? And I said, of course, thinking I had the right one. I had the one with one horn. Oh, he goes, and that's been edited. I go, what? <laughs> I'll send it to you. You'll understand what, I, what I'm talking about. So he sent it to me. And they, they really did edit that out. You know, they, some of them have no horns. Some have, but they, the real one, the original one, has two horns. Now, I'm not saying there's something sinister about this. There might be. There might not be. Okay, but it's very odd when you look at it that the first horn goes off just as Oswald enters the foyer area. And the second horn goes off right before Ruby jumps forward and shoots him. And that, of course, is only made possible. The murder of Oswald is only made possible because Fritz broke the formation. Okay, if you watch it, if you watch it carefully and slowly, you'll see that that was supposed to be a four-pocket formation, meaning that you would have protection for Oswald from the front, back, and both the sides. Fritz broke the formation. He sprinted out in front. His excuse was he was trying to open the car door. And that is how Ruby killed Oswald. These are all, I believe, important factors of what really happened that day, you know? Well, the weirdest thing to me is that Jack Ruby is at the midnight press conference. I mean, the oh, fact the, that the, he's the there. midnight press conference on Friday night. Right. That he's there in the police station. You go, yes. okay, something's up here. And then there's right. even, I'm not sure if it was Seth Cantor, but in the book that uh, somebody gets a phone call saying, we are going to kill him when you go to transfer right. him. Right. That's right? correct. And yes. the guy says, I recognize that voice. That was Jack Ruby. Right. So it's as if, you know, maybe he didn't want to do that. He wanted to tell people, look, there's no way I couldn't get to him. I couldn't get to him. And uh, and he was trying to, to tip them off. Right. Billy Grammer. He was a guy who answered the phone the night before. So these are all, you know, things that were never solved at the trial. And, and, and I also believe, as Tom O'Neill wrote in his book, you have this very, very weird association between Jocelyn West suddenly being a doctor for Ruby. Okay, and, and of course, Jocelyn West was a CIA contract agent who did all kind of experiments with LSD and far out drugs. How, how on earth does he get to be Ruby's doctor? Okay, and then he's the one, of course, that says Ruby has gone off his, off his noggin, okay, and he's not credible anymore. You know, and, and Ruby did say some wild things after that. But how do we know that he wasn't be, <coughs> being driven 
to that point by Jocelyn West. Okay, so these are all things that never got close to being discussed at the trial. And, you know, you can take whatever you believe about how Ruby died. Uh, I think it was a month before his new trial was scheduled. Okay, so those are all things that Larry O'Donnell left out. Okay. All right, Len, we got through all the questions. Okay. <laughs> all right, very good, very good. All right. All right. Well, I'm back, and I'll let you know of all the things that went on and uh, keep you in the loop, and we'll talk maybe next week. All right. Have a good night, buddy. Thank you. Bye-bye.